0: Welcome back. It's part two of my Nixium versus Scientology episode with Kelly Teal, who is in Nixium, and Aaron Smith Levin, who is in Scientology, as they talk about the comparisons, the different things. Erin's uh, really interested as a former Scientologist in Nixium and what's going on. Obviously, there's been a big focus on Scientology of late. A big part of that, I'll just be honest with you guys listening on the audio, because these intros and outros are just for the audio, guys. The YouTube channel just really, really took off around Scientology. The last couple of months they do always tell you once something starts to take off on your channel you've just got to hammer it and hammer it Uh, and I do loads of smaller videos about Scientology because I do find it fascinating on the YouTube channel it's the same name as this podcast Uh, but I'm aware as well that you guys will probably want a lot of diversity as well so uh, I've kept that in mind I'm trying to get the balance right and so there are all sorts of interesting things coming up obviously we've just had one on narcissism we had derek from myth vision talking about atheism we had the meditation cult just before that uh and up next we're talking about the parade car killer and johnny depp and amber heard through legal updates and things and after that it'll be professor wilford riley talking about the culture wars uh and Jim Harold on the paranormal, Helen Lewis on feminism, Jason Flom on wrongful conviction, and all sorts of things. The Great Reset's going to come up soon. Atheism, a talk with God. There's a guy called God, well, on Twitter anyway, who's coming on the podcast soon. So all sorts of varied, diverse things. If you are worried it's getting too Scientology-ish, there is an episode coming up that is just focusing on how Katie Holmes left Scientology and Tom Cruise. That is coming up as well. But that's the only Scientology thing in the next few weeks on this here podcast that said i do hope you enjoy this because again it is a fascinating cult it is one of the scariest and most abusive ones still around so yeah i think you might find today's episode interesting make sure to follow erin smith levin on twitter and get his growing up in scientology youtube channel kelly teal you can find on twitter and things like that she's got a great book out as well unapologetically glorious there's a these are great people. They've given up their time to be on here. So please do support them and stick around for the next few episodes. But now you're on the edge of Nixium and Scientology with Kelly Teal and Erin Smith-Levin. Yeah. 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 Kelly, was Alison Mack the Tom Cruise of Nixium?
1: Well, that's a very interesting question. So I don't know that much about Scientology, Um I initially, like, my first response would be to say sort of, no, I don't think she was in any the same league as Tom Cruise, as an actor starting there. And second of all, I don't think she was um, really a face of Scientology, if that's what Tom Cruise is. I, I, I don't, I don't really see it the same way. I don't know enough about Tom Cruise and Scientology to really answer that, I don't think.
0: Erin, what do you think?
2: Well, so the way I think about it is – Tom Cruise ends up being the face of Scientology because the media makes him the face of Scientology. Uh, Okay, yeah. So, like, sure, when Tom was promoting War of the Worlds, he wouldn't shut up about it for, like, a few months. But other than that, it's the media that is constantly saying, Tom Cruise, Scientologist, Tom Cruise, Scientologist, Tom Cruise, Scientologist. And as an outsider, that is what they did with Allison Mack. Like, I thought... I am under the impression that she is the Tom Cruise of Scientology. For that reason,
1: yeah. I, I when you say it that way, yes, yes. I I see what you're saying, and and yes, they have sort of made her the face of of Nexium because everything is about Allison Mack. And, Mac. um, and I, I remember going through the airport right after it all kind of exploded, and she was on the cover of it was Rolling Stone or one of those magazines, and it was her face right on there. And I remember thinking to myself. Oh my God, poor Allison Mack, You know, it, so yes, in a sense, the media has turned her into sort of the the face mm. of Nixie, and that's probably well. Let's go to, for
0: for those who don't know who she is. I mean, who who is she, Kelly? And 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 did did you know of her before going into Nixie? I didn't. I only knew of Alison Mack through. I hadn't watched Smallville, but no, give no, us a, I have never give us a, seen yeah. never
1: seen Smallville. Didn't know who she was. Met her in my first intensive. She was uh, coaching me, actually, in my first intensive when I got mm-hmm. to Albany, the last part of it, and I st- didn't know who she was. I just knew that there was something slightly off with her because she would jump into – she was my coach, but she would jump into our sessions, and then she'd all of a sudden have to leave right in the middle of a session. And I remember going in, and tell, in the break room I ran into, her and I said – God, you're kind of like Darth Vader you know you come into the group and you slash it and then you then you leave and she really she took that very seriously she later on said well, what exactly did you mean by that because I'm really trying to be a coach that's you know um, compassionate and empathetic and and caring about everyone I said oh no that's not what I meant it was just that you're in you're out you're here you're there and uh, she says well I have a lot of things going on well now I know what was going on with her at that time
0: yeah. At the time, took, I
1: didn't, but now I do. She was she already your, in DOS.
0: You, she took your assertion that she was an evil villain from a, a movie. I <laughs> yeah, was just I um, was as was a, kidding. was an insult. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So she was in DOS. Should we? Should we? This is the secret organization at the heart of Nixium that you get to find out about, and you have to, you know, tell us about DOS. So
1: my understanding of DOS was that it was. Uh, A small group of women. I believe it was actually Allison Mack and Keith Ranieri's idea that they start this group of women that they would uh, enroll into sort of a culture of women who would be a first line, sort of seven women would be the first line, and they would be called slaves. And their master would be Allison Mack. And And then Allison Mack would enroll someone who would also enroll seven slaves. So each of those seven slaves would enroll seven more slaves. So there you have sort of your MLM (laughs) breakdown a little bit. Wow. And it was meant to help women. It it was purported to help women become more accountable and measurable. And that was always sort of a theme within Nixium all all along. And these women were going to be doing great things in the world. They're gonna keep each other accountable, measurable. But nobody really knew from my understanding except for those first seven, that Keith was even involved. So everyone else that was recruited after those first seven slaves, who then had their own slaves and were recruiting people like me, did not know that Keith was involved in this.
0: What does it mean to have Alison Mack as your slave master?
1: So uh, I, she wasn't mine, and I wasn't in the organization, but what I understand it was to mean was that she, you would have to do whatever she told you to do. So if she told you to do, you know, 50 push-ups as penance, then that's what you would do. If she told you to go seduce Keith Raniere, that's what you would do.
0: And did she often tell you to go and seduce Keith Raniere?
1: People. She told people to do – some women to do that, yes. So, So this is –
0: this is the thing. So I I've I've seen um like I've heard clips where he's said things to her. Keith has said to Alison Mack, you know, oh, maybe we should brand the 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 women and things like that. Mm-hmm. And she sort of quietly, quite meekly says, okay. okay. And then he says it again and she's like, okay.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What do you think's going on without obviously you can't analyze you're not a not her psychiatrist or whatever, but what do you think's going on with her?
1: Well, I think with Alison and I know people will disagree with me on this, and, and I did know her not really, really well, but enough to kind of understand, you know, she was very indoctrinated into the system that, that we all were indoctrinated to, and into a completely different level than I was. And she also was on a 500-calorie-a-day diet. She was, you know, so you can't even think straight on 500 calories a day.
0: Okay. So... How, how low is that? What, what's... I don't know about 500,
1: calories. What? 500 calories a day. I pro- I'm i a fairly trim person. I'm exercise. I probably eat 2,000 calories a day, just okay. minimum, right? So she's on 500. If I ate 500 calories a day, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. I couldn't even think. I would just be a mess. Well
0: what so would she it be? was like on a, that like consistently. One, yeah. one salad or something or less than... Yeah, it's, it's like a
1: very that. small amount of food. And so she was pretty much just doing what she was told to do in order to survive in some ways. Now, I'm not saying that she did this from the get-go. From the get-go, she was, I believe, she was looking to ingratiate herself to Keith because she believed he was everything in the world to her. And so she did what she was told. Wow.
0: And I the guess, further well, in just, she got, the harder
1: just... it was, I think, to, to recognize what she was doing.
0: Uh, I mean, that, does that sort of remind you of Tom Cruise, in a sense, in, in the true believer kind of thing?
2: Oh, true believer, yes. Absolutely. I mean, uh, these things, they they don't seem analogous, but imagine you're the world's biggest movie star. Your job as an actor is just to put out blockbuster movies. And he, he literally damaged, probably irreparably, his relationship with Steven Spielberg. By being convinced that what he should do is put Scientology volunteer minister tents on the set of War of the Worlds. And to have Scientology volunteer ministers come to the set to perform nervousists and locationals and whatever. And you're like, dude, you don't shit where you eat. What are you doing? (laughs) And yet someone convinced one of the most famous powerful people in the industry that that's what he should do. I mean, that's I, that's not quite like Allison Mack eating 500 calories a day. But, you know, you can draw comparisons. Um, mm. I mean, it's crazy, yeah. you know, to go on Matt Lauer and criticize Brooke Shields for taking medication for postpartum depression. Oh, yeah. It's like, who made you think that was appropriate? His um, sister. Yeah, exactly. So but as far as the true believer, you know, absolutely. I mean, I do. Tom Cruise does genuinely believe that it is up to him and David Miscavige to accomplish the aims of Scientology 100%. Mm. Like Tom Cruise has been quoted as saying there's LRH and there's COB and then there's me. And some people have interpreted that to mean he thinks he's third in command of Scientology and that's not what he means. He means the burden of responsibility for accomplishing the aims of Scientology First LRH, Dave Miscavige, and then me because of the influence that he has in the world, mm-hmm. not because of the authority that he has within the world of Scientology. So 100% true believer. And it's funny when I see, I remember when I first saw Allison Mack in the press about all this, you know, not knowing anything about Nixon, I thought she was just someone who got sort of, you know, swept up in it and wrapped up in it. And, you know, it's not until I started watching this documentary a couple of weeks ago that I was like, oh, she was like the head of DOS. She wasn't just now, now uh, there's a fine line between victim and abuser and the victim becomes the abuser in many cases. And I don't claim to know where the right place to draw that line. Right. is. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: And I've been asked that question so many times. And I, uh, you know, I just think that there, you know, the judge had in this case really had a really big job to figure out where that line was with everyone. And I think it was very difficult to decide where that was, except for with Keith. You know, you just don't know how much of what someone's doing is just pure vic- being a victim, and and what part is being a perpetrator. So.
0: What happened to Alison Mack? Does she has she spent time in prison? Is she out now?
1: She has another. I think she has like another two or three years. She's in somewhere in California, I believe.
2: I didn't even know she was in prison.
1: Yeah, she's in prison. Nancy's in prison. Keith's in prison. Uh, Lauren Salzman was on. She got. Six years of probation, I believe, and uh, Claire Bronfman's was in prison or still is in prison. Her whole term was seven years. So she'll be out. Wow.
0: Does part of you feel sorry for her then?
1: For Allison? Yeah, I do. I have to say, I do. I I I know people argue with me on that on that point. I, I see her both as victim and perpetrator. There's, I don't know where that line is, but yeah. There's a part of
0: it's amazing, isn't it? This is the amazing, this is what I love, this is why I love talking about belief and ideology and things like that, because it can take us to a place where you become, you're, you're a nice person by all accounts of Alison Mack, you really believe in ideology, and then you've you've sort of gotten yourself into a situation where you've literally got slaves working for you, people who you call slaves, you've branded them with your initials, and you've sent them off to have sex with this man that you think is this great guy, and still think you're doing it in in the name of good. Does it? I mean does it make you guys ever think you know what we can't ever know if we're doing good? Like we, you never know what's a slight bit of ideology or whatever.
1: I think it's hard when you get wrapped up in it to see it from the outside when you're in it. It's very easy to see it from the outside looking in, but when you're in it, it's very difficult. And if if you believe you're doing the right thing, if you truly believe what you're doing is right and good, then you can justify a lot of little things or a lot of big things for the for the greater good if that's what you think you're doing.
2: It's one of the things that really strikes me as incredible. I mean, I know I said it earlier and I didn't I don't mean this in a joking way when I say Keith somehow figured out how to make Scientology uh, make Nexium an even more perfect manipulation tool than Scientology. Is the kind of stuff that we're talking about um, the women doing who are members of DOS and even Allison Mack getting to the point where she's like, "Oh yeah, I've justified to myself how this makes sense." Uh, Yeah, that's usually only happening in the context of if someone's telling themselves some spiritual, there's some greater plane of existence or something. And yet somehow all these people were convinced to do this without there being a spiritual component. And at first I was like, it's just incredible and remarkable. But then, look, you can think of like um, maybe something that's easier to understand of gangs and gang initiation and -hmm. the kind of things that gang members do to demonstrate their dedication to something as non-spiritual as a criminal gang, right? So that's something we sort of more more commonly, um, or it's easier to understand people doing crazy things to show their allegiance. But then you have a thing like Nexium where you're dealing with highly intelligent people who want to improve themselves. Right. They want to improve the world. They're thinking they're doing something good. And yet they still stopped short of that spiritual component, but they went all the way on the rituals. Uh, it's, yeah, because it's-
1: it wasn't necessary. wasn't because we were trying to be, like we were being told that we were in becoming enlightened beings we were going to become so integrated that we were going to be these amazing people that could help the world and you know basically be these perfect humans on the planet and that was enough of a of a a hook to get everyone that was the it was enough so there didn't need to be this overriding religious thing going on because it was just all about us so in some ways it was kind of i guess very Egocentric in a way because we just wanted to be better people, and that's all it took was to keep pressing against that. Like you're not being a good person; you you're falling short of this. You're not. You need to do this in order to make yourself better. Isn't that what you want? That was always the hook.
2: Mm-hmm. How many years were you in Nexium before someone approached you about joining DOS?
1: I was in Nexium for about uh, fourteen months, I think. Before before I was approached knowingly, <laughs> I was approached two or three times. Before that, not understanding what was going on. I oh. never got to the point of collateral. There were people calling me and kind of feeling me out to see kind of where I, where I was. And I now know, looking back, that those were recruitment calls.
0: Oh, What kinds of things?
1: Oh, I think one person called me once pretending that they needed help. She was a coach like I was pretending she needed help in coaching, but was really asking me, how do you feel about other women? Do you ever feel like other women are um, are uh, up against you? Do you ever feel like you need to be, like, want to be part of a, a group of women that, were, um, that you could trust, that you could? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm good. I have, you know, I've got my friends here. And uh, what are you talking about? Kind of thing. And then the conversation would kind of stop. So now looking back, I know exactly what that was because that is one of the slaves. That is the one who did the branding, actually. So... She had oh. been calling. She called me. So, okay. you know, looking back, it's 2020, right? At the time, I didn't know.
2: Yeah, what does is, is DOS stand on. for?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, it's it's a Latin term for basically master over slave. Oh, right. Dominious something.
0: <laughs> is, in a sense, is there, are there similarities between DOS and... and is DOS the Sea Org of Nixium, Aaron? I, I mean... I think I would have to understand DOS
2: better to see where the similarities there are because DOS and, and I'm still confused about the height, like the organizations within the organizations like ESP is technically under the umbrella of Nexium, but it's not exactly Nexium and the same thing. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm still a little confused about all that, honestly. Um, but DOS was also a secret Organization. Whereas the Sea Org is not secret. It's literally the management structure of Scientology. So, in that respect, there's not a similarity. Um, but I wonder, it sort of depends. Like, I'd be curious to know how big DOS got compared to the total membership and whether perhaps there was something that being a DOS member, even though it was not known by the other members of the group, somehow gave you priority in being promoted to run the other sub organizations. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, could it be a thing where the DOS members became the leaders of the group, even though no one knew what DOS was?
1: All right, let me go back to the first question. Um, So there were about 17,000 people who went through NXIVM curriculum, the ESP curriculum and the other curriculums like human pain and things like that. There were about three to 400 coaches like myself and upper Um, level members so you had a you had a community of about four to five hundred people and I think that would also include Mexico as well Um, as far as um, were the DOS members going to be sort of leaders in the community well one of them two of them actually were already leaders going into it Sarah was Lauren was Allison Mack to some extent So were they going to be trained to sort of take over ESP and the other curriculums? I don't think so. I think what Keith really wanted to do was create an army of women that would do whatever he wanted them to do. And I think in The Vow, they mentioned something about this organization could uh, have influence over political elections and things like that. That was sort of his thinking, was that this could be an organization of women who would do whatever he told them to do. Um, there were things called readiness drills that were sort of um, used throughout many, like SOP and Jeunesse and things like that, where you would be, have to be ready and answer a text within 30, minute, 30 seconds. And if you didn't, there would be some kind of penance for that. That's something that the Israeli army, I think, uses. They're called readiness drills, like to be ready at any moment. So if you think about that in context of DOS, what was he doing with that? What was he trying to do with these women? What was he trying to get them to eventually be, to do anything he wanted them to do? Not just sex, but I think maybe uh, corrupting political, you know, people in politics, maybe going and saying, hey, getting them, compromising them. Who knows what he was going to have them do? But if they were willing to sleep with him and willing to do, recruit other women to do the same, like, can you imagine recruiting another woman into this, knowing that she was going to be branded? I don't think I could do that. I might have been able to cre- recruit women into the organization until I found out about that or until I found out about things, but I don't know I shouldn't I don't I don't think I could have done that.
0: Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. But they must so, have thought being branded was a good thing, because, I mean, Alison Mack must have thought this is a good thing, because I can't believe that she's just like, I'm evil, mwahaha. And as we No, they all believed that,
1: like, that it was something it was going to create, that was going to make them more measurable and accountable and strong, like a kick-ass... This, a kick-ass woman like I can I can I can do this I mean listen if, if I could have stood something like that lit mm. I mean at the end of the day if I had gone through something like that I probably would have put the spin on it like man I'm I, I endured this right I I'm not yeah. saying it's right I'm, I'm saying I'm totally screwed up but that was their thinking after the fact it was like I endured this and that's what they were being pushed to do was push themselves beyond any limits and as you do that, each limit becomes the next. Bar, you know, then each one becomes a new bar, the new a new limit, and you keep pushing yourself and pushing yourself from branding to God knows who, what, you know, what what could they have done next?
0: Did the women know that they were being branded with the initials of Keith Ranieri and Alison Mack?
1: To my understanding, they many of them thought that it was a. Um, Picture of like the elements or something. So I don't. Be- I think most of them did not know there was actually K A R, Keith Allen so,
0: This is the the hard part of the cognitive dissonance, I guess, because I'm trying to think yeah. like, okay, so Keith and Allison thought they were doing. A good thing, maybe uh, some sort of true believers stuff. At the same time, they're thinking we're going to put our initials on these people and brand them with us. They must have thought like this is us being egotistical maniacs to an extent. There's a I whole
1: psychological thing behind branding somebody. I mean, it's control, it's ownership, it's it's that's what they did to slaves, to cattle, to mm. it, you know, to people. It's just it's like the, there's a whole thing that's messed up about that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Did H-Holical you ever survivors. end
2: up did you ever end up That's finding me. out that any of the people who you recruited or any of the people who were around you in Orange County ended up being members of DOS?
1: No one that I recruited, but a lot of people that I did know um that uh don't think I recruited her, but she was in LA at the same time I was and was uh a young and she I don't think she was in I don't think she was in mine. I didn't recruit her, but I did coach her. So there were a few people. Yeah.
0: And so they were what what would they go about doing day to day in in Dos uh, and how much of it was having to have sex with Keith Ranieri.
1: So they would do things like get together for a group. So there there are different pods of slaves. So each pod from what I understand had different experiences. Some were much closer to in, uh, to interacting with Keith And there was one pod, I believe it was Lauren's pod, or it could have been Allison's, where they took pictures of the whole group when they would meet, they would take a naked picture and send it to Keith. They had these meetings, I believe, once a week, and they uh, don't know what they would discuss because I wasn't there, but that was sort of what they would be doing in in addition to what they were doing within um, the curriculum of ESP or any other curriculums that they were involved with. Or any leadership role that they had. So they had all of that going on and DOS at the same time and only eating 500 calories. And there was one story that I read um, that there was a gal, I don't know who it was, who was a DOS slave and had to sell her computer because she didn't have enough money to live, really, basically. So she told Allison, this is what I read. So I don't know how true this is, but she told Allison, I need to go sell my computer and I have to go to this cafe to do it. So. Allison said, well, you better be back in, you know, like 45 minutes. So the gal left to go sell her computer. She met with an unknown person from somewhere, and the person bought her a piece of cake. And she's like, oh, I can't eat that piece of cake. But then she decided to eat it. And what she says in the story is there was enough sugar in, to give her enough glucose in her brain at that moment to realize what she was doing, and she left completely. Never wow. went back. Wow. Now that, what i read somewhere so i don't know how true that is i don't know who it was but it's very it was very interesting when i was reading it
0: so part of the coercive control was hunger and then the other part i guess was collateral and secrets right Mm -hmm. and uh, go on aaron well what about sleep
1: oh and sleep deprivation as well definitely yes
2: and how did that manifest itself like how were they able to control people's schedules so that they can't sleep
1: well for example for me I'm at an intensive and you're going you're working the intensive for 12 hours with other with students and then you have to stay and clean up and clean toilets and clean floors and everything else in your home. You get back to bed at like two in the morning, you have to be back at seven. And you're and that includes drive time and everything else. So by the end of an intensive, I was so sleep deprived that I couldn't, I would walk into walls just about. So take that and put that over kind of everything everyone was doing all the time, was just keeping everyone so busy doing menial things and some other tasks that maybe weren't as menial and just not getting enough rest period. Plus sleep was looked upon as a waste of time. So, Oh, you're, 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 leaning into comfort because you need eight hours of sleep, if that was your excuse. Like, oh, I, I'm, I would say, I really can't be at that meeting because I you know, just got home and I, I really can't be there at 5 a.m. because I have to be at the center at 7. Oh, you're just, you're just pushing yourself. You're just allowing yourself comfort. You don't need comfort. You don't need that mm-hmm. sleep. So that's how it sort of manifested itself.
2: That's right. I do remember Keith saying a lot, um, using that word comfort, um, mm-hmm. As a negative thing, that's something that doesn't exist in Scientology um, linguistically, at least. Uh, you're you you know you're just trying to be comfortable. You need to be uncomfortable. You need to be uncomfortable. Lean into the discomfort. That's remarkable. And how do these members? Uh, I was going to ask you before. You just mentioned that that woman was so broke she was going to sell her computer. How are these people, for the most part, supporting themselves?
1: So they're not. That's the problem. So many of them were. Broke, could barely get by. Everybody was living together in houses, you know, six or eight people to a home because sharing the rent. Um, Some people had side jobs, but it was difficult to keep those going if you're spending all your time at the center doing what they want you to do. And a lot of people had money, like and Mack had her own money. Many people who took classes had resources. So, but many of the people who were just the regular part of the community were struggling financially. Mm. Most of the people I knew were.
2: Did money flow up to Keith?
1: Well, yes. So money from the from the selling of the curriculum went upstream to him, but he also had huge um, amounts coming in from Claire Bronfman and Sarah oh, right. Bronfman. Right,
0: right. And so, so, again, were they just true believers who just wanted to back up the Keith, I yeah. mean, he must have just not believed his luck, all these women around him.
1: And giving him you know. money, right? And before yeah. that, there was Pam Kafritz, who probably, you know, she had somewhere around $10 million and left him about eight, I think, when she passed away. And there were other women prior to that, maybe not with as much money, but who would support him, uh, give him, you know, pay his rent, things like that. So he he hmm. did come into a lot of money very easily through these women who believed that he was the some kind of God-like what, person.
0: What, and what do we know really about? Do we know much about him and his upbringing and who he is? There's been a few comments uh, about sort of the Napoleon complex because people were looking at, you know, David Miscavige in uh, Scientology is very short. Tom Cruise obviously is very short, uh, although he's not the leader of Scientology. And... Uh, um, um, Keith Ranieri, I think, was very short as well. Short, yeah. I, I'm not making a comment before anyone you know, has a go at me that there's anything wrong with being short, tall, big, small, whatever. Uh, but there is such a thing, I believe. I mean, I've, I've encountered it. I'm tall myself. I'm, I'm six foot four. And whenever I've, not whenever I've, I've had problems when I was at school, it was always with very short people who had a problem with me. And I was like, well, I don't want any of that. Th- that does exist among a minority of short no, not people. Not that there's
2: anything wrong with that.
0: No, it's a minority of short people, some short people. Um, but yeah, what do we know about him and his personality, Keith?
1: I mean, I think he his mother was very ill during most of his childhood, I think. And uh, I don't know a lot about his, really what happened with his upbringing because so much of it is fictional. We don't really know exactly how, what was going on. But I think he had, I mean, I don't know if he was born just like missing a chip and has absolutely no compassion or empathy. He might be a complete psychopath, which I think that he probably is. I think that he was all along messing with everybody. And I think his whole goal was to not let anybody know that he was like Lucifer, basically. And that's what he, one of the modules within the curriculum was all about that. It was almost like an aha moment where, oh, you're actually having us look for this lucifer these luciferian type of people in in our around us but you're it it was almost like a joke what was that this was a one of the modules within the curriculum during during the first intensive the first 16 day intensive it was all about lucifer and how some people are luciferian and they have no sense of um, morality compassion anything and they're all they are around you and you need to be able to spot them and it was a very intense module and every i included hated that module because it was just so evil you ended the day with that and you were just like oh you know,
2: so I'm, but like literal lucifer like meaning he believed in the bible or just using it as a descriptor
1: as a descriptor so he called it luciferian type of people mm. not literally yeah not from the bible but just the, a type of person who was like a psychopath someone who had no empathy or compassion um Mm-hmm. Someone who was capable of doing very evil things.
2: And even so, at that early stage, were you identifying those traits in him?
1: No, 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 not oh, at all. I see. I see. Later on, looking back, thinking, huh, I wonder if he was trying to, like, tell us something in that module. And Keith, uh, uh, Mark Vicente has said similar things where, you know, he had suspected uh, that that Keith was playing with him and kind of hinting around that he might be a psychopath, sociopath type of person. Like what if I were the one, you know, that type of thing.
2: So uh, that's kind of interesting because L. Ron Hubbard did eventually write, I'll call it an essay, saying that he was the antichrist. Uh, huh. But, but in order to understand kind of like what you're saying, like he sort of turned it on its head in order to understand what L. Ron Hubbard actually meant by that, you'd have to understand Well, he's saying he's the Antichrist, but he also doesn't believe in the Antichrist. He doesn't believe in Christ. So what the hell does he mean? Mm. He's telling this story that the Bible is actually something that like the creation of the Bible was influenced by our alien prisoners, right? Who electronically implanted beliefs in us as beings so that as a society, as a civilization— we came up with the stories that are in the Bible and right. that the second coming of Christ as told in the Bible, I'm not a Bible scholar. I don't even know what the hell it says about the second coming of Christ, but that really that is there so that Christians will be, will welcome the second coming. But in the real world, the second coming will be the invasion of the Marcabian invader forces. And so the Christian population will be like, yes, come. And they're like, okay, this invasion's going really smoothly. You guys, and so LRA, uh, L. Ron Hubbard's um, point here was that the Bible is told in reverse mm-hmm. so, that y- so that the good guys you're expecting to come are actually the bad guys and the bad guys they're talking about are actually the good guys that they're trying to keep you from seeking. And so he's like, "I am, I represent what the Bible calls the Antichrist. Now, mm-hmm. when I've spoken to evangelicals about this and I've tried to explain, yeah, but you realize he didn't even believe in Christ, so he can't really be the Antichrist. They go... That's what the Antichrist would say. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's all like this circular thing going on. Yeah. yeah.
0: In terms of the similarities between the two, obviously sleep deprivation, Kelly, you were talking about before, that sort of, you know, rung a bell in my head. I was thinking about that. And, and the use of celebrities. So we talked about Alison Mack and Tom Cruise at the beginning. Was Richard Branson, did he do a speech there? And was Keith constantly recruiting celebrities?
1: Yes, he was always looking for people who had influence, either celebrities, business people, people with resources. That was his, my understanding when I asked about that was just that, oh, these people have influence. You can't go to people who don't have resources. They can't influence anyone underneath them. But people who do have that ability, and that's why we target them. And so that's why we're trying to recruit them, trying to get them in. And it kind of made mm-hmm. sense in a way. It's like, okay, I guess influential people can influence, right? So yeah. um, Richard Branson, I never met, and I think he took some classes or some curriculum on his island. I believe he, he allowed them to use his island in Fiji at, for one wow. week or something like that. I don't know if Richard Branson was there at the time. Is that or, Necker Island? Necker Island? Yes.
2: because you can rent that thing out, so you well, can he was rent friends with Sarah.
1: So Sarah Bronfman was friends with. Oh, and oh, I wow. believe I I've, I've seen pictures of him of um Richard Branson with Alison Mack and with some of the Kristen uh, Kirk mm. I think
0: Kirk. Erin, mm. is your YouTube channel doing so well that you were considering renting out Richard Branson's island? <laughs> uh
2: not this week, maybe next week, no. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I wish I had a private island that I you know, can you imagine having an island being like, "Yeah, I rent
0: it out for parties." I don't <laughs> rent it out on it's- Airbnb for a few million. It's so passe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Although that was probably ruined by. I mean, I sh- you're not supposed to say the person's name on on YouTube because your your YouTube channel gets like taken down. But uh, the person what? who was taking oh. children to his island, yeah. Oh so yeah, the, yeah, I think yeah, the Celebrity yeah. Island thing is now like that's an yeah. out because of him. Celebrity Island, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you, you don't want So to wait, but I did mean, Richard Branson?
2: I mean, he didn't actually I can't imagine being Richard Branson and being like, you know what I need? Some personal enhancement courses. Like, <laughs> do you do you know if he actually took some some I'm some not, intensives?
1: I I was not privy to that. Like I wasn't around for that. But from my understanding was that he did take mm-hmm. some because they told me, Well, people like Richard Branson has taken have taken our curriculums. This is like when they were first recruiting me, they mm-hmm. brought up his yeah. name, that he had taken curriculum. So that's what I was told.
0: I gather that he did. I I'd heard that he has that he took classes as well. Uh and I should say in the comments Nadia Prophet says Jared Leto Island Cult that's another reason that island cults uh, islands are going out of fashion for yeah. celebrities. But I mean it does it does give it a, a, a sheen doesn't it in Scientology more than any like cult or religion or group. I've never seen any who who embrace celebrities to such an extent. I mean they even have a thing called the Celeb Center, don't they Owen?
2: I know it's a little on the nose, isn't it? Um, but <laughs> but the explanation for it is literally, It's exactly what you just said. I mean, the, the way Elron Hubbard would put it is they are the ones who have influence on the comm lines of the world, mm-hmm. the communication lines that hmm. that uh, that in order to bring the world up tone or whatever, artists like uh, it's funny because they like. They really put actors up on the stage, but I guess society does anyway. That uh, you know, they're they're the great communicators. That's what it is. It's not that they're famous, it's not that they're rich, it's that they're such effective communicators and their message reaches so far and wide, and they have so much influence that, that that's why you go after them. And um and and honestly, that probably is a true, st- meaning I do that is a correct statement of the motivation. You can get money from someone who's not famous. You can get money from anyone who's got money, but you need the famous people uh, to reach far and wide. And L. Ron Hubbard wasn't even shy about saying saying that, you know. And I mean, it's successful
1: that- too, right? Successful business people who have a name that you recognize, those uh-huh. were also kind of put in the same categories as, as the celebrities in Nexium people who could influence. So when I was being recruited, they were naming people like Richard Branson and other people who had taken these courses. And I thought, okay, well, must be legit. Even though I read um, the Forbes article and I read, I think Vanity Fair had come out with something six or eight years prior to me joining Nexium. And I read these articles and I was like, before I took my curriculum, the night before I was thinking, shoot, gosh, do you think this thing's a cult? And then I thought, well... You know, people who are recruiting me seem fine. It doesn't seem like there's anything weird going on. And then I, when I called Mark, he said, "Mark uh, Elliot." He said, "Well, don't worry about that. These these articles have been out for a really long time, and you know, they're just people who are trying to take a good thing down. And you know, there's always that explanation that was I could kind of sounded okay. I can I can understand that. And the people just seemed so cool and everything. And I thought they're not in a cult. They're not culty. They're not killing chickens and running around. You know." doing weird stuff so it didn't look like a cult to me it just didn't have the trademark things that at the time back then you'd associate with a cult now this conversation about cults have has grown so big now people now recognize the red flags much more easily because we talk about them now those red flags were not even in my anywhere around me to be able to recognize them
2: do you feel like the press has overstated or over-portrayed um, Allison Mack's role in Nexium?
1: I think they've sensationalized it. I think that yes, she was a, a major player in all of this, but I think they have slanted it to make her into this huge villain that I don't really think that she was. So It's again, you have that line of where's the victim and where's the perpetrator? Like, where is that line? And that's not for me to to
2: say. And I guess what I mean, other uh, specifically what I'm going after there is not how bad was she really? But I think, well, I think what I mean is that I have been left with the impression that she is like the Tom Cruise of Scientology. And yet when we're talking about something like DOS, it's important to realize DOS was a secret organization. So mm-hmm. the fact that she was one of the heads of DOS doesn't even reflect at all on what her actual influence was within the world of Nexium. If we think of them as being a world within a world, you could be the head of DOS and be a nobody in Nexium overall, yeah. right?
1: Yeah. And she really wasn't like, she wasn't the top leader in overall in NXIVM. Like she happened to be my coach for some things I did in Jeunesse and my coach for some things that I did in my first 16 day. And I was around her in the coaches' summits. And so I interacted with her at V-Week. And But she wasn't like this thing that everyone was like, oh, Allison Mack. I mean, no, she wasn't mm. the person. The person was Keith Ranieri. And mm. then the second person was Nancy Salzman. And then after that, it was sort of a free for all, more or less, depending on who who was doing what and who was closer to Keith and who, you know, who was being um, giving tribute to the most by anybody around. So Allison was kind of just a pretty much an everyday player. She was a coach, I think. With you no, know, she was a proctor with maybe a couple of stripes. I was a coach, which is one down with a couple of stripes. So yes, she was further along than me, but she wasn't like the person. I would go to or think about like she's the leader of Nixium or anything like that.
2: Interesting. Very interesting. That's
1: why I think it's a little different with the Tom Cruise thing. There's he has so much more influence than she did or ever will have.
2: Well and also I think no matter how much information gets put about puts puts gets put out about Nexium, there will be this conflation between what DOS is and what Nexium is like? Right. You have fifteen. You said fifteen thousand people who'd gone through the curriculum. Four hundred co- um, coaches, or whatever. And and does that mean they were on the striped path?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. And then, um, if you had to estimate how many women were in DOS, do you know?
1: Uh, let's see. So the immediate circle was about fifteen, and I'm estimating there was probably about a hundred altogether, including Mexico. Mm. I, I think it was around there.
2: Uh, would it be fair or unfair to say that Keith's ultimate goal, like that—that that his idea would be all women in Nexium would in some way be on the path to eventually joining DOS? Like, if someone characterized it as, "Oh, the point of Nexium was for Keith to have this harem of sex slaves," would that be fair or unfair?
1: I think fair to a certain extent, yes. I think, was that his ultimate um, goal when he started Nexium? No. Did it evolve into, wow, I have a lot of freaking control over these women. They'll do whatever I want. Yes. So then it started to grow. But then if you think about, and I always laugh at this, like they recruited me. They were trying to recruit me. I mean, I was not this person who wanted to be measurable and accountable. I was a wimp. I pushed back against all accountability most of the time because I was tired and I didn't want to do it. But so they got to a point where they were recruiting people like me. I'm way too old for for what he wanted for his, you know, first line slaves, right? So I would never have been asked to sleep with Keith. There's just no way. Um, But they were getting to a point It was so out of control and there was no, the organization itself was just falling apart more or less to the point that they were just talking about recruiting, recruiting, recruiting. So he just wanted numbers. But wasn't thinking about who they were recruiting, so it wasn't but, thoughtful in that way. If that makes sense. But
0: but mm-hmm. but Kelly, you're not you're not that old, <laughs> I would just say, um, and and you you are you know objectively you are you are an attractive person. Uh, oh, it's I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that he he might have had that in his. In his I plans. well
1: put it this way: when I met him, so I was pretty much. I don't know if I'll call it myself drug there, but they told me in, in my 16 day that Keith wanted to meet me. And I first said, no, I'm exhausted. It's like my 10th day. And I, I want to go back to the hotel. And I said no to Mark Elliott. And then somebody higher up came in, came in Jim Del Negro. And he's like, you, you have to go see Keith. You can't just not go see Vanguard when he wants to see you. And I said, why not? And he said, "Because this is, this is such a an amazing um, thing that he's done, not everybody gets to meet him. This is not something that will happen every day. It's like you can't turn this down." And so I said, "Okay, fine." Like I, I got so badgered, I said, "Fine, I'll meet him, but I I'll spend ten minutes at volleyball because it was like ten thirty at night, and I need someone to take me back to my hotel because I don't have a car." So Mark promised that we'd do that. Went to go meet Keith, and he came across the the volleyball court. Met me, asked me if I was a hugger. I'm like, what are you talking about? And then asked me a few questions. I've been watching you. You know, I hear you're doing great, blah, 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 blah. And um, then he gives me this big hug and says, you know, I'll see you soon. Then next thing I know, he's following me on Facebook. And now I look back at this and I think it was sort of like he was checking me out to see if I would be material for what he wanted. And I don't think I was because I think I would have been mm. recruited into DOS at that point. And this was early on when I, start, when I had first started the curriculum. But I now know that some of the women that were in Albany that were brand new students like myself were already in DOS. They were recruited through DOS into the curriculum and mm. told.
0: But, you, but you hesitated. So that's. And, and it, this, was know, that's, this was later on. This
1: is much later yeah. on. Yes.
0: Okay. Keith so,
1: wasn't
2: exactly a looker.
1: No, mm. not at all. Not at all. <laughs> And I'm
2: sure it was even less impressive in person. He already looks tiny on TV.
1: It was just it was just stupid. It was gross. It was like, ew, you know? Yeah. And then, oh my gosh. Then the next day, so I go back to class, everyone's you got to meet Keith last night. Oh my gosh, how was it? I heard you got to meet Keith. So all of a sudden I'm like, oh, well, maybe there is something to this. Like, wow. I mean, I'm getting all this attention for having met Keith and that something special that just adds into the whole lore and all of the indoctrination and everything else into who he was and what
0: we were doing was volleyball am i right in remembering volleyball was a big thing
1: that was at the volleyball court yeah so he played volleyball pretty much every night around 10 30 11 and everyone not everyone but many people would go to see him and it was like your chance to talk to to keith (laughs) to talk to vanguard and people would wait all night just to talk to him and so here i am being taken there for an audience and i'm not appreciating it so then you know I, i got a talking to about that as well
0: Ah, uh, you must have had so many different things pulling you one way and another. Got a question in the in the in the chat from uh, Marcus Five who asked, "I'm curious as to what the story is and, and why you left. What was the breaking point for you, Kelly? And I remember you telling me a bit about you know y- y- there's certain illnesses that you couldn't move and those kinds of things. So tell us about that as well.
1: Well, I after a while, I think when you become, when you start to go against yourself for a long period of time and you know something's not right, not sure what it is, but you're, you're doing things that go against your best interest and possibly being asked to do things that are semi-criminal and you know, it's not right. And your body will tell you that in Most in most cases in my body did. And it started, I got an autoimmune disease. I, I started having a hard time just, you know, getting out of bed. And so... That was starting right around the time that uh, that I got a phone call from Canada saying, have you heard the news? And By then I'd already been recruited, so people were already recruiting me very heavily to get into DOS. I did not know it was called DOS. I heard it was a secret uh, organization, a women's organization that they were starting. I get this phone call that leads me to the Frank Report that tell that he where he's breaking the news about women being branded within this organization, being asked for collateral. When I saw the word collateral, I called the person who was recruiting me and I said, Is this what you were talking about? And she said yes. And I lost it. It was, was she just, still in
2: at that point that you asked her, or was she out?
1: She was in. Yeah.
2: And she admitted it to you. See, mm-hmm. that's the kind of it blows my mind.
1: She did. She told me yes, this is what I was talking about because she had just sort of found out about Uh, some of the things that were going on as well. Now, she had experienced other things besides branding. She had not been branded. And so when she found out about it and that it was breaking up, yes, she told me the truth. So that was very fortunate for me. Hmm.
2: So there is that aspect of even these people who were involved in DOS still didn't truly understand what what it really, really was at the top. That has the similarity to the Scientology thing of – you know, really creating these uh, highly confidential silos of information. Yes. Which also contributes to feeling like you're super, super special.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. She knew some other things were going on though, that were, you know, when I look back, well, well, gosh, you're pulling me into that. You know, they were getting paddled. They would have to get naked and be paddled by their, by their uh, other DOS members for some kind of punishment or penance. So that was going on. So that's what I would have gotten myself into or at least exposed to had I joined DOS. Hmm.
0: Wow. Okay, um, go on, Aaron, just like you got a question.
2: It I totally just left my mind. <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> when you were being approached about DOS, they, um, it sounds like they specifically used the word collateral. Yes. How did they sp- Did they tell you what they wanted you to provide and you were like, no? Or did they generally describe the whole thing and you were like, eh, it doesn't sound like it's for me.
0: Oh, well, and, collateral and, was... That, and, uh, sorry, just to, uh, can you... Because uh, Alison Mack was like the head of that, wasn't she? So I just want to make... Can you answer reframing Alison Mack? And I, I, I just gathered that she was often asking people for their monthly or daily collateral.
1: So I believe she was in charge of all the collateral that came up through the lines for everyone. I believe that's how it worked. And then okay. that collateral was given either to Keith, or at least Keith was able to see it and know about it, and the other, and it was actually put into a safe, I think a Dropbox. I'm not sure. I okay. think that's where it ended up. A lot of people don't even know where their collateral is. So it's still out there. And there's people walking around today waiting, like what if the other shoe drops and this collateral comes out? So I was told, I was asked for collateral Um, And it being something that I'd be embarrassed about, something that I wouldn't want anyone to know. And if I couldn't think of anything, I could make something up. So it was suggested to me, now there's multiple meetings on this, so it was suggested to me that I make a videotape about my Reiki practice that is that, that I'm doing something that's not good. So basically lying about who I am and what I'm doing on a videotape. And that was actually... In the courtroom, they had, it actually came up on the screen in some texts that were shown when they were talking about my collateral as being not good enough because it reflected my life issue. And so that was asked for something a little stronger, something bigger. And I never got to that point. But I actually was thinking about, well, I could possibly make a videotape about that and lie about something like that. It's not going to hurt anyone but me because I was really concerned about not bringing anyone else that I cared about into this, right? So my mind at the time, super indoctrinated, right? And I'm thinking, well, maybe I could do something like that. I could lie about myself, as long as I'm not lying about anybody else or, and I'm thinking now I look back and go, God, what was I thinking? But that's where I was at with that. And, but they were asking for something more. And they were asking for house deeds with some people. They were asking for bank accounts. In fact, one person had the password to someone else's bank account at one point for collateral. They were asking for you to talk about, you know, somebody molesting someone in your family or all kinds of all kinds of things.
2: They didn't care if it was false. They just wanted something discreditable.
1: They They told you lie about it. Just say some just lie. Make something up, something that would.
2: In your opinion, were they saying uh, lie because I have to turn something in and if I don't, I'm in trouble. So go ahead and lie. Or do you think even Keith and Alan were fine with it being lies? Uh, Keith and Allison were fine with it being lies
1: they were fine with it being lies most of the stuff that was said was lies i mean alison Mack was talking about i think her brother molesting his kids i mean in her in her collateral that was that was on the um, that was public and so he, they didn't really care as long as it was something that would incriminate you and or make you look bad or something you'd feel bad enough about that you didn't want out in the public that you would do anything to keep keep secret and wow. each time you gave collateral, I found this out later, you give collateral to get in then you find out more about DOS. And then you had to give collateral once a month, apparently. Now, you have to keep coming up with new stuff. So I can only imagine what a lot of these women were coming up with.
2: Hmm. Was there a preference for uh, sort of compromising photos or was it just all, all the same? No one cared.
1: I think they started you slow. They started you with something that you could maybe be okay with. And then eventually you get into the naked pictures and then you get into the other stuff. So I think they wouldn't ask you for a naked picture right off the bat because you'd be like, what are you talking about? No. But then if once you're in and you're already collateralized and then they're asking you for more collateral. And if you don't give that collateral, then maybe this collateral will come out. So we want you to give a naked picture now. Then you're like, shoot, now I'm in it. Now I can either be okay with letting it go out into public or get the hell out.
2: Do you think it was so that just it could all go in Keith's spank bank or was it really just for the control of it all?
1: I think it was part of it was the former and the the rest of it was the latter was just really for control.
2: Because you think if you had to choose between just giving a nude photo or the deed of your house, you'd be like, I'll go with the nude photo.
1: Well, yeah, but not right off the bat. Right. And if someone asked for the deed to your house right off the bat, you'd say no. But I mean, I think it was an it was incremental, just like the frog, you know, the whole story about the frog in the pot you know you put the frog in boiling water he's going to jump out you put him in warm water and bring it up to a boil he stays in and dies so that's kind of how they did it it was in increments so that you could justify a little bit at a time just like with indoctrination you justify a little bit at a time
0: yeah i suppose after six months of doing it you'd think well no nothing's happened i've given up all these little secrets nothing bad happened they haven't released them to the media okay i can give bigger secrets if that's what they need now and then Oh my or God, you're that's...
1: collateralized to do it, right? So you've already have this much collateral. Okay, now I'm in it all this much more. What's a little bit more? I'm already in it. So a lot of people that left had to say to themselves, I'm okay with just laying that collateral be out there so that I can just go. And I'm just, I, have to, I have to reconcile that.
2: Has anyone had their collateral released?
1: Not to my knowledge, other than what collateral was talked about in the courtroom. But I don't believe anyone's collateral. And and there's still people, like I said, walking around right now wondering if and when their collateral will be released. Nobody knows where it is, supposedly. Mm. I don't even think the FBI has it.
0: Were you tempted, I suppose if Keith has it, he's thinking like, you know, I might need this at some point. I don't know, you know, right now there's nothing he can do with all of that, but he might need it at some point to blackmail someone if he ever got out of prison or who knows what. Were you tempted when it all sort of came down to contact Alison Mack or any of the people who were sort of victim slash perpetrators in this?
1: I, yeah, I actually wanted to call Alison at one point, but I also, and Lauren, and but, and even Nancy, but I do know that once they pled, they were not allowed to speak to anyone within the organization. and so um and that came down from the judge. So they were not allowed to speak to anybody. That was part of their um some on in some cases part of their bail package, and other times just part of their like Nancy was on home. Uh, probation before the trial so they weren't really allowed to talk to people and another part was I was kind of scared to call people even though I wanted to I was still afraid to because I didn't know at the time where anybody was at in their thinking about Sam, and I didn't really want to be that involved with it, it, it I was scared
0: I think we're running, we're running low on time. There's one question I just want um, Aaron to quickly answer about Scientology. Uh, it's from Jen Beldy in Australia saying, do, did or do they genuinely believe uh, L1 Hubbard and David Miscavige in the COS? So you have to explain what the COS is. Or are they deliberately taking their members and their pockets for a ride?
2: COS is Church of Scientology. Um, So LRH was the kind of guy who couldn't tell you a story about something that actually happened without embellishing it to make it sound more incredible than it it already was. So in other words, he could be telling you the truth in the sense that this actually happened, but lying to you about all the details and who said what to who and all that kind of stuff. So LRH very clearly did believe in... um, Uh, The stuff that he said, because up until the day that he died, he was using Scientology's auditing practices on himself to get rid of the body thetans that he tells you are stuck to you on the OT levels where you learn all that stuff. There was only a handful of people, three or four people who were with him the final six years of his life. And one of those guys who, who actually deeply loved L. Ron Hubbard and it, it broke his heart to tell this story. He said, you know, he, he, he was kind of losing his mind towards the end of his life and he'd become preoccupied and infatuated with continuing to find and get rid of body thetans, even though he was already supposed to be at a level of the bridge beyond which you've already gotten rid of all your body thetans. So even at the end of Hubbard's own life, he was actually saying, I have failed. Be, I have failed. In, in in my pursuit here of full operating Phaeton. So he very clearly believed his own bullshit. Now, David Miscavige, I think, believes in the, the, the structure, the architecture of Scientology, but he's aware of the lie that L. Ron Hubbard finished writing up OT 9 and 10 and 11 through 15 and they're just sitting in the vault waiting to be released once all the Scientology organizations are big enough around the world. Like, Miscavige, it's actually how he was able to steal control of Scientology from Pat and Annie Broker, who are the ones L. Ron Hubbard put in control of Scientology. Pat was like, I got OT 9 and 10, and you don't have it. And that's how he was controlling Scientology. Miscavige orchestrated a raid on the property where Pat claimed to have these materials, and that's how he was able to call Pat's bluff that not only did Pat not have anything— but LRH didn't leave behind anything but psychotic, incoherent notes and ramblings, and there was no OT 9 and 10. So I believe that L- that Miscavige, in some twisted way, believes that it is his job to either hold the fort until L. Ron Hubbard comes back to actually create OT 9 and 10, or he will have to somehow figure out what OT 9 and 10 is. So the difference is Miscavige believes in Scientology, but he knows the parts L. Ron Hubbard was bullshitting about whereas your average Scientologist has no idea about the parts that L. Ron Hubbard was bullshitting about. So that's my answer to that question. Good question.
0: That is a good question and a good, very good answer. And I think I've got one, one more for Kelly here. We won't be able to do more questions after this. But are there still people who are loyal to Keith Raniere? Um I remember seeing them dancing outside the prison. Is Nixium intact at all?
1: So, yes, there are a few people who are still believers. There is a group of women called the Dossier Project who there's, I think there's eight of them, all of, I know every one of them, and they believe that Keith has been in prison falsely. They are complete believers in everything he has ever done, done or said. And I think that there are people still outside of that group who are still believers who may still be practicing the curriculum.
0: Thank you to my wonderful guests, Aaron Smith Levin and Kelly Teal. Do follow Erin on Twitter, Kelly on Twitter as well. The Kelly Teal she's at. Um, Go to Growing Up in Scientology for Erin's YouTube channel. Get hold of Kelly Teal's unapologetically glorious book. Uh, You should watch The Vow as well if you haven't already. It's all about Nixium. I think it's on, I don't know, it's on all sorts of channels and things. Loads of big episodes coming up and I'll see you then, hopefully. Yeah, stick around. Come listen to more episodes.
1: 18 plus.